0: Now I'll throw it over to Harold to, for well, response.
1: Well, first I would like to thank for the invitation to co- oh <coughs> the invitation to come here and for the opportunity to comment on, the, on this topic. Uh, I must admit I had no prior real knowledge about the uh, the, the problems concerning indigenous uh, knowledge or traditional knowledge. Um, I come from Denmark, as was said, and um, Denmark is a rather homogeneous uh, country. I mean, we, we have no great minorities and so on, uh, so they are not. This, this is not a big issue in Denmark. In fact, of course, we have uh, Greenland as a part of Denmark, and we have the Greenlanders. Um, But this discussion, which I know has uh, gone on in Denmark, but only in professional circles, I mean, within the National Museum and uh, the Greenlandic uh, authorities. And it resulted, in fact, in uh, a couple of years ago, that the greater bulk of all Greenlandic items in the National Museum of Copenhagen were transferred to Greenland, uh, in fact, as a sort of kind of return. But this was not a public issue. It was sort of, well, you you could read it and lay it down in the newspapers, but it was not a big issue in in the public. So, now, the first time I really met this problem was in WIPO. I was asked uh, in the late 90s to represent IFLA in um, WIPO on the database issue. And... um, at that point, also the question of folklore, as it was called then, was raised, and is the, the talking in the corridors and so was that the developing countries were uh, perhaps willing to give in on the database issue if the Western European countries were willing to give in on the folklore business. Uh, as you know, there came nothing out of it. Either issue, uh, nothing happened. Uh, and good to say. Um, when I think this was a very interesting um, a presentation, and I read also the, the article beforehand. And I put myself the question: Is this really a question of copyright? I mean, when I think of my intervention uh, the, at the previous session, this one fits for all. I think uh, the question is here. Is this really a problem that copyright is uh, the, the right place to deal with this, this kind of, of problem? I think I will question that. We can, the, the whole problem uh, can be divided into two. The one is sort of the moral problem, the, polit- uh, the ethical problem, um, and the other is the economic uh, problem. If you take the the moral problem first, which is also in the focus of of, uh, today's presentation, I think that Jane's paper uh, describes very well uh, that this is primarily an ethical problem, a moral problem, uh, and resulting, it might be different in different countries, but has very much to do with colonial history of uh, Australia in this particular case, but might have in uh, for other countries in, in other cases and of course um, if you think of Clausewitz, the military historian he says that war is a continuation of politics with other means uh, one could rephrase this saying that lawsuits that's also a kind of civilized war with, as a continuation of politics with other means But the problem is here but is this really what is needed? I mean um, do we solve problems by uh, um, going into court by making laws around these problems? It's very typical for homogeneous countries like Denmark for instance that um, there are lots of problems lots of issues where we don't need any kind of Legal regulation, and this has something to do with, or uh, we have court cases. Uh, we we don't. There are many areas where we wouldn't dream of going into court. And the reason is that in the country where you uh, have more or less the same ethical values, of course, you judge the cases more or less similar, similarly, and there is no need to, to, to conflict. There will the conflict are not likely to arise. In a multicultural uh, country, like for instance the United States, you see much more cases going to court conflict because the law is sort of the basic, the common denominator, sort of the different values that different groups may have in the country, sort of are reflected in the law. And so you see ethical problems Being put into uh, legal problems, or you seek legal solutions to ethical problems. I mean, you have uh, this very, very famous case which we all uh, followed some months ago about this uh, lady being uh, the question of whether she would be allowed to die or not. siaska I think she was. I I cannot imagine how such a case could come up in in Denmark, for instance. it reflects of the difference of, of culture. Now, if we say, <coughs> if we look at the problem here with traditional knowledge and indigenous people, sorry, I have difficulties with this word, uh, um of course, legal regulation in multicultural countries may be the last resort or may be necessary But if it is necessary, the question is, is the copyright legislation the right answer to this regulation? Mm -hmm. And I so uh, assuredly doubt that. If I think again uh, of uh, the question, uh, uh, European countries have uh, all had during many, many centuries regulations about blasphemous conduct you know, about blasphemy. I mean, if you were blasphemous, uh, you could be put to death uh, some centuries ago. Now you get a fine. Uh, sort of, um, uh, the, the idea is that you have some means for people who pay, who are disrespectful to other people's religious feelings, that you have some Some means to stop them or sort of to show you you don't want this it's very interesting that we had this spring, this winter I would say, in Denmark a discussion about whether our paragraph about blasphemy should be abolished or not Uh, it was interesting because uh, because of the uh, society becoming more and more secular, I mean um, Really, who cares that was sort of the issue. And the discussion showed up that well, we are getting more and more multicultural multicultural. We get immigrants from uh, lots of countries. Uh, there are lots of Muslims in Denmark now as it was not for 20 years ago. And the result of this public discussion was that it was better to keep this paragraph not to protect Christians, but in order to be able to protect Muslims if somebody would show disrespectful attitudes to, to them. So my point here is that what, what is in need or might be in need is exactly what James tells us they are working with in, in Australia, is codes of conduct, it's uh, rules of conduct and eventually um, try to, to uh, 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 if, if it's a legal matter, then it's sort of one has to sort of dig into the, the, the peculiarities the nuances of the actual problems to see what are the problems and how should these uh, rules of conduct be in order to um, to treat this material in a proper and respectful way. The reason why I say this is that when you make, um, well, if you want, uh, if we want the, the to solve problems, I mean, the, the idea here is to conflict as, um, uh, mediate bet- in, in, in a conflict situation. It's Interesting that you can either go sort of into a gen- more general level of abstraction. That's very typical when you go into uh, legislation and when you go into copyright, if, we, if you should use copyright in this sense, we would go to very high level degrees of, of abstraction of very general principles. But we do not solve problems there. It's interesting to see. That when we try to solve problems, the best way to do it is, as also showed in Jane's paper, is to dig into the concrete peculiarities or the nuances of the actual issues. When we do that, then what happens is we find out that we end up with describing the matter in the same ethical language. You see? And when the moment we are able to describe, what is happening in the same ethical language? Then, in fact, we also, more or less, have the same attitudes to it. So, and that's sort of the point of mediating a conflict instead of solving it by going to court, which is sort of a warlike uh, uh, attitude. The mediation process is to try to describe the um, the conflict, uh, the issue, uh, in a more um, detailed way, it's so detailed that in fact, in the end, you, ha- you share the values and you get the same perception of it. And I think that's the way one should try to solve these moral problems. And if no. not, um, that is possible, at least if one would say that legal regulation should be possible, then I still say not copyright that's for the moral issue and I think James paper very good demonstrates the value of this. This also shows that there's not one fit for all. I mean, the situation in Australia might be very difficult very different from the situation in South Africa or in uh, South America or wherever you have these these problems. Now, when you come to the problem of economic rights um, um I mean, the use of traditional knowledge uh, has also these economic aspects, the aspect that um, these, uh, the knowledge is exploited by, uh, for instance, pharmaceutical industry. That's very typical. Uh, they um, try to get at this knowledge, and then they utilize it and make inventions and work on it and patent somehow uh, the uh, thing. And the problem is, or they, as in Jane's article, they use some design or whatever and, uh, for, for commercial touristic reasons and make profits of this. Or like in my own country, the, the, you, my, about a year ago, the company Lego, who makes uh, toys for children, they made something which was uh, grossly offending to uh, some uh, New Zealand uh, uh, people. And um, in fact, um, sort of uh, were inspired by this, this uh, uh, religion, uh, New Zealand uh, religion. Now and the problem here is that of course it it, is, it seems unfair to us, and it uh, seems also unfair to me, that uh, Western European country, companies, can uh, exploit the knowledge of uh, indigenous people um, and, and uh, without any compensation uses. This is unfair. We, we all feel that, and that's a problem. The problem is that I cannot see what one should be able to do against this uh, because. One could say in a cynical way, well, that's the beauty of liberal economy. I mean, uh, somebody gains and somebody loses. That's that's nothing more to do. But the problem here is that traditional knowledge, I cannot see and and I've tried also to read what is uh, within the Bible context. um, How one could uh, define this uh, concept to fit into uh, the criteria for copyright, I, I, I just can't see how this can be done. As far as I can see, it's trying to fit around the uh, pencil into the square hole. I mean, uh, I think that's really incommensurable. Um, so, uh, on the, and that's sort of one side of the issue. The other side of the issue, and it I would say it also is against my own values in this issue. I accept unfairness of it, but on the other hand, we are sitting here wanting to correct the course of copyright. We are wanting to have open access to knowledge for the benefit of society. And uh, I think I'm not really uh, really uh, wanting to have new copyright regimes here to sort of limiting the public domain area. So I think we are in a real conflict here. We are in an ethical conflict. On the other hand, hand, we feel the unfairness of of these uh, actions. On the other hand, it's very difficult to to, uh, advocate for a a restriction of the the, uh, access to this knowledge by our industry. Uh, without compromising values, we think, ourselves, or at least I think, are very, very important. I think this is a real problem here, a real ethical dilemma.
0: I'd have to ask you to yes, have I'm, peril,
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm finished in a moment. Um, I think that the remedy here might be uh, for the indigenous people to be informed and guided to use contract law. I mean, that's. Uh, uh, in some of these cases I've read about um, sort of they were cheated, really, <laughs> regularly cheated the knowledge was sort of drawn out that's the one possibility or I would say the other possibility, if again, a legal regulation is necessary, then I would uh, prefer sui generis legislation, but not copyright legislation, I think one should try to make legislation specific to this objective of protecting these people and not try to push this into a conceptual and legal framework where, as as I can see, it does not belong. Well. Thank you, Harold. Um, John, I'll ask you to make your
0: comments, and then Jane, I'll give you an opportunity to... Re- To comment further, should you wish, John. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm not an expert in the field of indigenous knowledge, and I'm not familiar with uh, the extensive scholarship that Jane cited in her paper. But that never stopped me before from making comments, and I'm certainly not going (laughs) to let it stop me now. Um, uh, I I see this as the whole issue of indigenous knowledge or traditional knowledge really falling into two very different issues, and Jane discusses uh, ultimately the separation. On the one hand, you have issues relating to ownership, I mean, who owns this material? On the other hand, you have issues of access. Once it has been gathered or, or, or reported by someone, what is the, the, the ability of the indigenous people to access that material? I see these as two very different issues and I have very different views on, on, on these two. So let me start on the ownership side and then I'll go to the access side. Uh, with respect to the ownership side, Dr. Anderson correctly identifies a fundamental definitional problem. You know, What is indigenous knowledge? Uh, who are indigenous people? What is, again, traditional knowledge? Sometimes it's seen indigenous as a subset of traditional. It's also a, a highly political issue, as, as, uh, as she correctly indicates. And so to depoliticize this issue uh, and to avoid problems of political correctness or incorrectness, I, I will refer to it. Uh, or discuss it in the context of uh, the traditional knowledge of my own ethnic group, uh, the Jewish people, and, and part of it is going to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but I think uh, not entirely, because I think it demonstrates uh, uh, the, the, the problem with giving uh, control or, or ownership rights to traditional knowledge. So again, if you say, "What is you know what is our traditional knowledge?" Certainly, our religious views, our our world views, our rituals would all be part of that traditional knowledge. And so, uh, you know, there's this book, you know, the, you know, the contribution of the Jewish people Mm. to the world, whatever that, there's that, that book about it. And it talks about ethical monotheism. And, and certainly the way we often view the world is we see, gee, you know, the, you know, Christianity and Islam has taken all of our great ideas. They've misappropriated (laughs) They've misappropriated our knowledge without any permission. I mean, whether you you, uh, uh, you know, from the Pope wearing a yarmulke and the matzos and Kiddush wine at at communion, or or the Muslims davening several times a day towards their holy city and, and treating pigs as trafe. I mean, these are all our traditional knowledge that have been taken without our permission. And then you say, well, what should the what should the term of protection be? Is it the life of Moses plus 70 years, the life of Maimonides plus 70 years, or, or is it perpetual? And if it were perpetual, again, think of the royalties. So you can see. <laughs> now, now, to make it, to make it a, little more, a little more concrete, a little more serious, um, I knew I was going to be the last speaker of the day, so I wanted to keep it a little lighter. But, but again, if you want to say, well, modern Judaism, we're not going to treat that as traditional knowledge. What about Hasidic Judaism? And we're talking, you know, people who live 10 miles from here over in Borough Park and and, uh, in Williamsburg, Uh, they dress in clothes. They try to, the way they dress is the way uh, uh, Polish aristocrats dressed in the 17th century. Uh, They have, each sect has its own very clearly defined uh, songs, dances, uh, folklore. And other rituals. Now, these songs, which which again they'll be starting to sing uh, in a couple hours when the Sabbath starts, uh, these songs have been popularized. Uh, a lot of them were popularized, especially by one 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 guy, uh, Shlomo Karlbach. and he made you know a lot of money by popularizing these Hasidic songs. Um, and, and they are used uh, both in, in religious contexts, subsequently to its popularization, and non-religious contexts. And indeed, in Israel, there's a Hasidic song festival, uh, and, it, and it's pretty popular. Um, now, you know, the, 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 the Hasidim aren't particularly happy about this, and certainly the notion of their uh, their songs that they see as as being very holy, uh, being used by people who are not part of their sect. They, they object to it. They find it offensive. But, um, you know, I think that that is part of, you know, cultural evolution. And I, it doesn't, and also I don't see, again, as you're saying, you know, what, what legal mechanism could you possibly use? Uh, these, these songs uh, were, condu- you know, were con- conceivably composed hundreds of years ago, and they probably all derived from uh, Hungarian folk tunes or, you know, wherever, wherever this, this, the, the particular sect uh, started to begin with, so so how would you figure out who owns what and and so forth? Uh, but with respect to the folklore, it's the same stuff, uh, the same the same problem. My father uh, happens to be a professor of Jewish studies, and about 20 years ago, he translated a set of, uh, of some of the more famous folk tales, the 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 tales of uh, Nachman of Bratislav. um and you know he translated them into English and then he analyzed them. Now that was. Uh, i mean the the the, the Brazellowsidim thought that was i mean just absolutely heretical um, and they were appalled by a the notion that they would be translated from you know the holy language into English and then be the analyzed in some of it actually sexual analysis i mean you can imagine how how uh, uh, you know in Freudian analysis how 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 appalling that must have been to them but you know, again, you know, Nachman of Bratslav, who may have composed the stories. Uh, again, he's been dead for a couple of hundred years. So, who who owns the rights, and and should anyone own the rights to that? And I I would, I would think not. And then, if you really want to get into real brass tacks and economic and the economic dimension, again, this city, it's a very important, uh, significant political and economic issue. You know, who decides whether food is kosher or not? Again, that is a form of traditional knowledge, just like in the bio, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, um, if you're talking about uh, plants, and and it's the same thing. I mean, who decides what is traditional, who decides what, whether something is kosher? Enormous economic implications of that, and and as a result, there's an incredible amount of fighting, and one rabbi will will recognize one butcher, and another rabbi will say, no, he's not, he's not pure enough, he's not kosher enough, and so forth, and so you have enormous issues of control, authority, and as a result, it, it seems to me that, that, trying to mix ownership or or have ownership derived from traditional knowledge is incredibly problematic and and just uh, again fraught with these enormous uh, uh, practical problems and again if you're saying well that, that uh, uh, you know the, the whether whether it's the Aborigines in, in uh, uh, if, if Aborigines in Australia should have certain rights and and um, uh, you know, the people in New Caledonia should have certain rights, and I'm sure the Hasidim will say, well, why shouldn't they have their rights too? What's the difference? Uh, and I think it would be very hard to explain why one is different from the other, uh, because, you know, traditional is traditional. Um, now, that's on the ownership side. Now, when you get to the access side, I think it's a completely different issue. I think especially where uh, where uh, rituals have been photographed when there's a traditional artwork, uh, all kinds of material that is housed in libraries and archives or or people, again an anthropologist may have photographed a ritual and and that might be the only recording of that. Uh, I think the rights of access of uh, indigenous people to this material should be very strongly preserved. I think a lot of it uh, could be under, I think existing mechanisms uh, already exist to a great degree. certainly fair use would be one of them Uh, and and we've heard about how in in, in Australia they're looking at expanding uh, uh, fair dealing to to give more flexibility. Um, The protocols we've heard about is certainly and and, and in here the the whole open access movement in many respects is very similar to the protocols uh, that that, that Jane is describing and the whole notion is sort of like you know if Making sure that when that these are, it's understood in the field, if, whether it's anthropology or science, there are certain means of conduct, and that there's certain access will be ensured and guaranteed. Again, it's, it's, uh, it, it has ultimately it might be enforceable or not enforceable as a matter of contract law, but certainly going into it, it could be a, uh, uh, a again, it's a more protocols or ethics or a, again a, a cultural. Uh, uh, approach. We heard about the orphan works problem and, and uh, uh, it's a serious problem as Jane indicated in Australia and here in this country we're also going through that exercise trying to find a way to, uh, to clear rights or, or to use rights where the uh, author or uh, copyright owner cannot, cannot be located. And I think that that's obviously an area that we need to work more on uh, here and, and elsewhere. And in many respects, it's, it's also bringing, bringing in a concept of, uh, of patent law. I mean, in, in, in certain countries, there is this notion of prior user rights, and we have a little bit of it here. Arguably, we could have more of it. And again, I think that that's a notion that perhaps could be used uh, in this traditional knowledge context, too, that, that again, it's their culture. Uh, just because someone else recorded it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to have uh, very great access to, to use it uh, and, and reuse it uh, in, in ways that are, are meaningful to them, especially if, if you know this is the only reporting of, uh, of, of certain kinds of things. So again, I, I see a very significant difference between the ownership issue and the access issue. On the ownership issue, uh, uh, I, I see it's very problematic uh, to, to give ownership uh, rights and traditional knowledge. On the other hand, on the access side, I think it's, it's, uh, it's very important to ensure that people do have access to their own culture. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, John.
0: So, thank you to both of our panelists. Uh, Jane?
2: Do you care to comment at this time?
3: I'll just say five quick things, very quickly. Um, one, I'm not, a, I'm not a total fan of a new law for Indigenous people in relation to intellectual property. I think that practically and pragmatically it's impossible. And that um, how do you get consensus for a law about Indigenous people when there are one billion Indigenous people in the world? I mean, these are fundamental questions that any kind of treaty or law would have to deal with. Um, So in that sense, if if a new law isn't the answer, what are we left with? Well, we're left with the possibility of copyright being quite a strategic tool um, that can be used in certain circumstances, and that recognising that Indigenous people do not have the same level of access to law and to remedial um, strategies also means you have to develop an adjunct to that too. So you do have to develop things like protocols and contracts so that there are these forming new relationships, really. Um, The third point is a a little anecdote from um, when I was in Galawinko in terms of ownership. And when you, you... when you do research with Indigenous people, there's a whole range of ethical ways in which you do do research, and it has to—it's um, it, it, not about studying Indigenous people. You have to explain your research incredibly clearly, and you have to have developed things that benefit Indigenous people, so they're not just the subjects of your research anymore. And one of those processes is that you have to explain to the town council what your project is and how it's actually going to play itself out and what you're going to develop. And so I had to do that um, in Galawinku, and. Of course, I had to get translated to the town council as well. And as it was being translated by my friend Joe, um, you see all the everyone around the room's nodding. Yes, yes, Oh, this, yes, yes, yes. Oh, this is great. Everyone's very excited. And as soon as that had finished and the town council had kind of um, closed down, all the women came up to me around that were at the meeting and told me exactly where their family collections were. They had never been to these archives and libraries. And they're all over the world, but they knew precisely where the collections were, where the ceremonies were held, where the photographs were. And it was different for each person because each person had different familial and kin relationships in term, and which anthropologist had been there when to record that particular material. And all that, material, all that knowledge was still in the heads of people and they really do think that they own it. So when, you kind of, when we go, well, maybe ownership it creates these tensions, then explaining to people that, no, you don't own that, It breaks people's hearts. Um, And then there's the question of the commercialisation of material that's in archives and libraries. And they're they're big issues in terms of, say, um, you know, deep forest, for example. It's a classic case of how um, material that's been recorded by anthropologists gets reused, and a lot of money is made out of the, 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 the product. And, you know, this is something that the Smithsonian's dealing with in terms of folkways and how it, it deals with these, these ethnographic collections that become valuable over time and that people can exploit economically later and how you kind of do deal with the, um, of feeding some of that economic benefit back into indigenous communities or you don't and indigenous people are again, because they're not the owners still disadvantaged within the economic marketplace. And um, I guess the the final point is that I'm wondering in Australia whether it also might be useful to think about how, um, given that these knowledge centres are being established uh, through the Northern Territory Library Services, how it might might be possible to think about um, the provisions that are within the Copyright Act in Australia that uh, deal with libraries and archives and how they might be augmented to also apply to the knowledge centres, given that they're also being funded and they're also being set up as libraries and archives themselves. And that might be a useful way of thinking about things too. So that's...
0: Okay, I think we have time for a few questions before we're expected downstairs. So I'll start off with Jim. I really appreciate, uh, John, your comment about the book, uh, What the Jews Contributed to the World. Uh, I remember of another book,
2: the uh, Irish, civil day, <laughs> <Right. laughs> But you
0: know, we each have our rights. <laughs> I wanted to ask Jane a question. Uh, you mentioned the word repatriation a couple of times in your paper I wonder if you could tease out a little bit more your, your sense of the relationship, perhaps legally, between repatriation as it's becoming embraced in the international community, uh, international law, and the issues that you address here. And the second question is, does the evolving concept of a cultural conservancy, that is, a, a body of works, a body of stuff developed in common by a community um, and that's addressing John's ownership question, but for which access is available open, if you will, uh, for those who uh, wouldn't appropriate, but would use it properly, one could say for education and research. Does that offer an interesting and viable model for the way we may conceive of these types of materials?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll go to that bit first, and, <laughs> and then the other question. Um, I mean, it's very clear that in the establishment of the Knowledge Center in Galawinku, it was not just for indigenous people within that particular space, it was also to be the point of entry for researchers as they came to engage with the community too. So in that process, it's, it's providing this um, broader educational purpose that's actually on site, and therefore kind of shifting the way in which people have to deal with the community, in the sense that they do have to deal with the community, rather than having to deal with an institution thousands of kilometers away. And, I mean, the the knowledge center is interesting because all the material, I mean, there's there's two computers and one computer is for one clan's knowledge and one computer is for the other clan's knowledge and they're not allowed to cross at all. Um, And how you kind of build these infrastructures and these databases that can deal with the complexity of the knowledge systems that you're working upon to start with. And it was very clear that when we were working, the Yong will have a, a, a different knowledge system. It has three different levels of restriction. Um, and the one that we wanted to, or that I was told was how they wanted to deal with this, was, in, was the public knowledge. We wanted to use copyright to work on the public division of knowledge, as opposed to the restricted and then the very restricted. And they kind of perceived that the Yong system worked really well. In protecting those other layers, but it was in this kind of traversing space where researchers come in and pick up material and engage with the different or different Indigenous people that was the problem. That was where the material got used and exploited, and then and not back into the community. In terms of repatriation um, and what that means for libraries and archives, especially I guess from from my organisation's perspective. Um, is we don't give originals back. Um, We make copies. And again, it really depends on the different community about what they want. Some people do make claims to all the material and as an institution, we have to say no. Um, And they're kind of pragmatic decisions that get made by the head librarian and the head archivist almost on a daily level. They'll get a request for that. Um, but we're we're happy to make copies, and in terms of how, say, the Digital um, Amendment Act influences how libraries and archives function in Australia, um, where you're, you're not supposed to make more, if you're going to make a digital reproduction, you have to then destroy the copy that you've made, and that creates problems when people lose their copy, which happens quite a lot as well. It kind of gets shared around the families and it gets, goes bung, you know, in, in one in one house and then the other family wants to see it and they ask for another copy and we've already destroyed that copy and have to make another copy. And So there's some of the kind of complications that do arise because of the copyright constraints on the reproduction of the material.
0: Okay, next up, Sam, then Stephen. and then I think we may have to...
4: Well, I, I really agree with the contention that this is not within the Office of Copyright Law, and I don't think it's within the Office of Law. Uh, I'm not sure what it's within the Office of to deal with, but the whole notion of copyright law as an instance of a statutory, statutorily created set of private property relations is an extremely Western concept that's based on extremely Western philosophical justifications, be they rights-based or utilitarian-based, and then to superimpose these very, very Western notions of uh, private property ownership on indigenous knowledge just seems to be the worst example of uh, cultural imperialism, if, if, not, if not worse. Um, so, but then you'll look at the TRIPS agreement and if, if your country were to make restrictions on the rights of the uh, photographer, you don't want to tangle with the photographers, I can tell you that, um, then you, you got a TRIPS problem, because perhaps you're, uh, you're creating limitations or restrictions that don't meet the three-part test. So how do you undo all of this damage that's been institutionalized internationally through through, through TRIPS? So maybe the idea here would be to recharacterize this as uh, material that is not copyrightable material, rather than in terms of a restriction, or uh, uh, I, I don't know, but I think perhaps TRIPS needs to be countered with another equally powerful um, a treaty or convention, which is hard to imagine if it's not within the World Trade uh, uh, apparatus. So I'm left then with the final, final question. Um, perhaps there's a perhaps there's a place here to think about non-economic, non-transferable uh, moral rights. As, as, uh, th- that could be set up within the communities that would not be considered property as such but would be, uh, and you know, there's very little, little understanding of this in the United States because we don't have a moral rights regime here. So that's a lot for you to comment on. Oh, but, okay, yeah.
3: um, I'll quickly say that the, the problem is that the material is copyright. The material that we're talking about already has copyright rights associated with it. Um, and that, that they're not indigenous is almost beside the point. Because they already do have copyright rights associated. So, not that it's as if we can take it out of a copyright regime, it's already there. Um, that the Indigenous people are also individuals and also want to make money, that um, they don't necessarily always align with the community, that um, people are, do assert individual rights over material, over art, um, needs to be recognised as well. Um, there's a, there is a tendency to kind of collectivise Indigenous interests. And that really puts a a range of Indigenous people out of the loop, off the scale. Urban Aboriginal artists, for example. They're kind of not within these discussions because they're not traditional enough, because they're not in a community, etc. In terms of communal moral rights or moral rights, Australia, by chance, has just um, produced a bill called the Communal Moral Rights Bill. And whilst that sounds like a... Fabulous thing, of course. Translating that into a community is really tricky. Um, it's again presuming that community is a stable object around which you could make legislation, which, by no imagination, is it. And the ways in which the communal moral rights legislation is playing out in Australia is that no one's going to argue against it because it sounds so good sounds like it's actually going to work for Indigenous communities. Besides the fact that it has five requirements that have to be met by Indigenous people and that the onus is on Indigenous people to meet those requirements, again, uh, uh, disadvantages Indigenous people. But the reality is that the Indigenous Communal Rights Bill will seriously disadvantage cultural institutions in terms of how they make acquisitions of material as well. And for an organisation like IAXIS, which does work for Indigenous people, it will slow down the way in which people can get copyright material to use in books um, because you constantly have to negotiate with a different community. Um, And it will just... I really don't like the communal moral rights
2: skill. Uh, Jane, I'm thrilled that um, you have uh, avoided simple answers and simple solutions to any of this. Um, because there are none, uh, I, I'm struck that when I delve into the literature about traditional knowledge, or I don't know, I'm actually more comfortable with groups' rights regimes because that seems to be how it all. I don't even know who's traditional or who's indigenous. I don't, you know, who knows. Uh, but nonetheless, um, most of the interesting stories, most of the good literature, and most of the people speaking about this either live in or do work in fairly liberal nation states, mm-hmm. New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just starting to deal with it in the U.S., especially with repatriation cases. Uh, but I worry about illiberal places. I, 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 I look at the experience of uh, uh, cultural identity of uh, the uh, Nubians in, in, in Egypt, uh, who have had a huge struggle being Nubian, especially in the, uh, in the uh, Nasser era when everybody was supposed to be Arab. Uh, I worry about the the cultural rights of Palestinians. I worry about the cultural rights in everywhere Palestinians live because they're not getting a good deal anywhere. Uh, I worry about the cultural rights of uh, um, uh, 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 a variety of minorities in Turkey, Uh, about uh, Tibetans in Tibet, which is about to become Han majority. It's not even going to be Tibetan majority for very long. I worry about Muslims in India. Uh, I worry about the people of Aceh and Iria What how does this formula change when the state is basically hostile to the group?
3: I mean, this is this is a broader question about who's who's being represented within these international forums to start with. I mean, the creation of the IGC that talks about traditional knowledge the representative is a state, and the states are talking about what they want to do about their indigenous peoples when at the same time they're going, no, well, actually, we want to change the land rights for you, we don't want to recognise you in these ways. And it's a huge issue that not only UNESCO is dealing with, WIPO is dealing with, um, the CBD is dealing with, how do you get cultural rights onto the agenda when those fifth parties aren't negotiating parties? And it creates huge issues. For example, what the effect has been in, say, places like Ghana, and Indonesia is that folklore is owned by the state, so <laughs> traditional musicians have to pay the state royalties to use their material, which is kind of not what you'd really want. That's not an ideal <laughs> situation for anybody. Um, and how and how places, you know, organisations like WIPO deal with that. These are huge questions about state and representations and the power of the nation-state to negotiate on these people's behalf.
0: Jane, thank you so much. I think it's really...